Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. I'm Dan Seed from the University School of Journalism and Mass Communication. On this month's episode, we have a topic that is going to interest parents, how children learn to lie. It's one that I'm really interested in as well. And we're joined by Dr. Jennifer Clegg, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology, and Dr. Catherine Warnell, also an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. So as a dad to two girls, one is four and a half and the other is two and a half, as I said, this is a topic that really interests me and I'm sure other parents out there. So one that will have great interest for, for folks as they learn to navigate this topic with their children. But before we get into the work and the research, tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and research interests. Dr. Clegg, I'll start with you. Hi, I'm Dr. Jen Clegg, and I have been at Texas State now for four years. It's hard to believe it's gone by pretty quickly. And my interests are in cross-cultural developmental psychology. So what that means is I'm interested in how children's cultural environments, and that can be anything from the family level to the country level, impact how they grow up and how they learn. So really thinking about things like what are the kinds of skills that children are picking up on from other people and how do little things like cultural norms, right? So things that we don't even realize exist, but really are just a big part of our lives. How are kids picking up on those? And then how are they also driving how they learn from other people as they go on their way to becoming adults? And Dr. Warnell? Yeah, so I've been at Texas State since 2016. Um, so I came in just before uh, Jen started here. And my research looks at social cognitive development. So social cognition is just a fancy way to say thinking about people. So thinking about people's thoughts and feelings. How do you know that other people are thinking things that can be different than what you think, right? That other people can know things you don't know or might not know something that you do know. And so really looking at how children, you know, and then all the way through young adulthood, how we learn to process other people's emotions, how our ability to think about others' thoughts and feelings influences our friendships. And so I was really happy when uh, Dr. Clegg started on faculty here because there's so much cool stuff at the intersection of cross-cultural development and our social development. And so we were really happy to get uh, some collaborations started. And so this topic here that we have, learning how children learn to lie, of course, is rooted in research. And the research that we're talking about began before the pandemic and focuses on children between four and 10. Walk us through how this came about and what was the process for this research? Yeah, so this is something that I kind of hinted at earlier that Dr. Clegg and I both had an interest in. So from my perspective, right, thinking about other people's thoughts, what they know and don't know, very important for pulling off any kind of lying, right? So if you're going to uh, tell your, your parent that you did not eat the last cookie out of the cookie jar, you've got to kind of know, did they see me do it? Can I pull off the idea that the dog somehow has figured out a way into cookie jars, right? You've got to be thinking about other people's thoughts, feelings, how they're perceiving you, how you're perceiving them. So, you know, lying as kind of a real world example of all of these research questions is sort of how I got into it. Um, and then it dovetailed really nicely. I'll turn it over to Dr. Clegg here with, with some of the things she was working on and thinking about. Yes, absolutely. So as we approach this question, and this actually started with one of Kate's or Dr. Warnell's 
graduate students. So Kelly De Lacerda, who is now a PhD student at UT Dallas, for her master's thesis, she brought to us this idea of lying, which is something that neither of us had really studied before. But when we started talking more about it, like Kate said, it really nicely presents an intersection between our two interests. Because not only do you have to have really sophisticated cognitive skills to be able to lie successfully, what is and is not appropriate to do in terms of lying, which is something that we'll get into, is also culturally dictated. So the kinds of lies that we tell to each other, the kinds of lies that we learn about, are actually part of children's cultural environment from an early age and something that is heavily culturally influenced. So here we have the intersection of social cognition and cross-cultural psychology in a really great real-world applicable question. And my understanding is, is that this research was conducted through a parks program, right? Yeah. So this project got started in a, in like uh, Jen was saying with, with a wonderful student, Callie, my, my very first master's student here. And all of this wouldn't be possible without amazing Texas state undergraduates and graduate students. And so I had previously done work where kids, you know, come to my research space and they play games. Um, and so one of the games we, we had them play was a sticker hiding game where they hide a sticker from a puppet and the puppet asks where they hid it. And if the kid tells the truth, the puppet gets to keep the sticker. But if the kid lies, they get to keep the sticker. And we found that kids as young as four just happily are lying to these puppets about where the stickers are and you know getting the stickers for themselves. Um, and that's a great way to work with kids and families. But as that project was sort of wrapping up, Dr. Clay came to me with a really great idea that I'll let her talk about because it was something um, she was really passionate about, about getting even more involved in the community through the parks program. So part of being a cross-cultural psychologist means that I get to go to places outside of the US and ask developmental research questions. That also means that I've never been restricted to a lab space per se. So whereas a lot of developmental psychologists get trained in this idea that you bring kids to your lab space and you have this really controlled environment. In the past when I've done research, I've gone to the South Pacific and had to think about, okay, in places where I don't have a lab, how can I set up research to make it happen? And so some of my favorite videos to show are when I'm in Tana Vanuatu, for example, which is an island nation in the South Pacific, and I'm doing research with kids and we're outside on a mat and a chicken walks by, right? So a very different training experience brought me in how to do research. And as part of this and, and part of my training uh, at Boston University, I had also seen a focus on going into the spaces where children already are. So rather than having to work to have families come to you, going to where they are going to be. And one of those places that we realized existed in San Marcos is the parks. So children are already going to be at the parks with their families. Um, I'm sure you know, as a parent of two kiddos, it's one of the best places to take kids. They love it, yeah. Yeah, so we said, is there a way that we can bring this model of doing science where families already are that I had been trained in into our community? And so Dr. Warnell and I worked with the San Marcos Parks Department and we started the Science in the Parks program. So we were going to Children's Park in San Marcos and seeing if families would wanna participate in some fun games and studies there. And the other part of it was also just getting a chance to talk with families about child development. So 
you know, often our research gets stuck in journals or gets stuck in the classroom. And this is a really easy way to go and talk to parents and kids and see what kinds of questions that they have. Well, they can also help us with our studies and participate right there without having to worry about coming into the lab. And so what exactly did your research find? That is a great question. I don't know where to start with that, Kate. <laughs> yes, this is a big one. I, and I, I was listening to you, Jen. Unequivocally, I can say no chickens have wandered by at any point during any of our studies here um, in Central Texas, but you never know. Um, and, and I will note, although that program is, of course, on, on hiatus with the pandemic, we're really excited for when it is when we are able to, to safely restart it, because we really do miss. We've been doing a lot of work over Zoom, and it's not the same as seeing you know, kids and families in, in person. So I'll, I'll start with one of the first published papers from this, this program of research, and then maybe, Jen, if you want to talk about some of the, the new exciting things that we yes. have going on cross-culturally. So one of the first papers uh, was with my graduate student, Kelly de la Cerda. And so I mentioned that sticker hiding paradigm. And we had kids play a couple different versions of that game. So these were four to seven year olds. So, you know, pretty, pretty young kiddos. And they played a version where if they lied, they were able to keep the sticker for themselves. But well, then that's they played tough them. for kids. They want to keep it. They want right? to keep it. So they, they are, it. they're pretty willing to lie. In fact, we started off with that version of the game and we had a problem, which was that every kid just lied every time. And when you're studying child development, you want what's called, you know, variability. You want some differences between kids, try to figure out why kids are different from each other. So we added some new versions of the game with these puppets. And we told kids that they were either on the green team or the yellow team. And then, you know, our, randomly we flipped a coin that day. Well, kids love being, you know, on, on teams like this. So, oh, they're on the green team. All right. They love the green team. And then they get to play these sticker hiding games with either people on their same team or people on the other team. And they could play some different iterations of these games where say, you know, if Dan, you and I are on a team and Jen's on a different team, I can lie to get you a sticker or I can, you know, and keep it from Jen, or I could lie to Jen and get, keep a sticker from her. And we had a version even where a lie meant no one got to keep the sticker. So if the kid lied about where the sticker was hidden, we just put it back in the box. And we found when, uh, regardless of who you're playing against, your teammate or someone on the other team, if you have a chance to keep that sticker for yourself, you're going to tell a lie. So you are going to lie to someone, even if we're on the green team together. And I'm like, well, I could get the sticker. I guess I don't want Dan to get it. I'm going to lie to keep it for myself. But as soon as you know, it's about helping a teammate out and there's no chance for me to keep it. Kids are much more willing to tell lies to help out this person on their same team than someone on a different team. We even found kids as young as four are willing to tell a lie to keep the sticker out of the other team's hands, even if it means no one gets it. So they're willing to tell a lie about where that sticker is hidden just to make sure that the opposite team doesn't get it, even if it has to go right back in the box. We call these sort of spiteful lies that we're seeing in even these young kids where, well, I'm willing to lie about where I hid it just to make sure you don't get to keep it. Uh, even though I don't get to keep it for myself. And so really showing how young, you know, kids are really socially sophisticated. And, you know, if you've got a four-year-old in your life, you may already be thinking about this, but definitely, you know, how even very young kids are sensitive to the group membership, right? What team they're on. They're able to use lying in sophisticated ways. They know, you know, when it's maybe more of a selfish lie, more of a helpful lie. And so all that work was about something called antisocial lying or sort of, you know, telling a lie to trick or deceive to maybe help yourself. But there's a whole other type of lying out there that we're really excited about, which is where you maybe tell someone they look great even though they don't look great that day. Oh, your new haircut that you gave yourself, you know, in March of 2020, new haircut, 
looks fantastic. It did not look fantastic, right? Um, and so I'll, I'll kind of turn it over to, to Dr. Clegg here about you know uh, what work we're doing on, on that type of lie, which is called like a pro-social or a white lie. So when we think about lying, right, we the first lie, kind of lie that comes to mind are those kinds of lies that Kate was talking about, right? Those lies that keep you out of trouble or are self-beneficial in some way, right? That get you something. And these are also the lies when we think about when kids are learning how to tell them, these are the earliest emerging ones, right? So these are the ones where you start to see maybe your three or four-year-old tell you like, oh, it wasn't me that ate that cookie or yeah, I brushed my teeth. When we <laughs> all know that that's definitely not the case. But another part of the work that we had been doing with kids was starting to see, well, we know that's an earlier emerging lie. What about these more complicated kinds of lies? So these lies that aren't necessarily directly beneficial to you, but are more kind of social in purpose. So those things that help us to maintain good relationships with each, with each other. So things like Dr. Warnoff saying, you know, if someone shows up with a terrible haircut, are you going to be honest? Or are you going to go ahead and say, no, you look great, right? Or I think back to, you know, parents, and especially being a parent with a pandemic baby, right, without maybe some childcare support, if you go and you ask, you know, your, your mom on a Zoom call, how am I looking today? She's going to say, great, you look awesome, even though you probably looked very, very tired and unflustered. But going back to that idea of intersections, we kind of take for granted that this is something that we do. And this is actually highly culturally variable. So the idea that if someone asked you for some sort of feedback, that you would automatically, the polite thing to do would be to say, no, you look great when they don't, or no, this food is amazing when it isn't, is true in the United States, but not necessarily true in other places. And so we realized this through talking with colleagues about our research that there's actually a lot of cultural variability in the extent to which people are socialized to tell these pro-social or white lies. And I have direct personal experience with this because I'm actually married to a Hungarian. And in Eastern Europe and in Hungary, one of the things we realized very early in our relationship is there's actually a lot more focus on direct feedback as the polite thing. Hmm. So if I'm out there and I you know, am asking for feedback about an outfit or about a drawing as we do with kids, and we'll talk about a little bit more in a second, it would be rude to not tell me the truth, right? Because part of our social contract in that culture is that I expect the truth out of you. Um, so this can lead to a lot of cross-cultural differences and misunderstandings, right? So in the United States, we have this idea that maybe I don't want that direct feedback and that direct feedback is actually really rude. Whereas in other places, not giving direct feedback is actually considered really rude. So we started wanting to look into how adults are thinking about this and then also working backward to think how this is socialized with kids. You mentioned the idea of a drawing and mm -hmm. saying, oh, that looks great or you did a great job with it. I mean, clearly as a parent, you find yourself doing that with your kids, right? Oh, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I can see that. That's mommy. When it clearly doesn't look anything like that. So this is something that we're teaching our kids without even really realizing it. And then is that something that then they pick up? Is that part of how they learn to lie? That's oh, part of what we're yeah. trying to explore. So this is actually a pretty underexplored topic within developmental psychology. So there's limited research looking at when pro-social lying develops and also the ways in which kids are picking up on it. 
So is it that kids are looking at their parents because you know we don't know in those drawing situations do they actually think their drawing is really bad and so when you say it's great are they thinking hmm you're lying to me or do they think their drawing is really great and then you're just confirming that they think it's really great and do parents even view that as a lie is another part of the kinds of questions that we're asking so this is actually you know Kate talked about some of the research that was out there and, and was published we're in a really great spot especially for those interested being and being a part of research where we want to ask these questions with parents and children. And we're also looking at this cross-culturally with collaborators in the Netherlands. And I don't know if, if Kate wants to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, I think it's such a great question. We're doing this over over Zoom now. So we've set up, you know, and now I feel like all four-year-olds are I've become very proficient at the world, at the world of, of Zoom. So we're always looking for families to get involved, but we um show the kid, you know, over over the video camera or you know, when we were doing this back in person, in person, and we say, I worked really hard on this drawing. This is where podcasts can only do so much as a medium. I can't show the listeners what it looks like, but it's it's not a good drawing. So I say, I worked really hard on this drawing. Uh, and then you know, you hold it up to the kid. And it is very, very bad, right? And you ask the child, well, what do you think of my drawing? Is it good or is it bad? You know, how many stars would you give it? Um, and we do find, you know, the four-year-olds, the five-year-olds typically are pretty, pretty honest with you at that point. So, you know, I've had, I've had many four-year-olds look me in the eye and say, it is bad one star. Um, <laughs> and then as they get a little bit older, um, you know, you start to see by seven, eight, definitely seven, nine, ten. Oh, it's great. It's great. You know, five stars. And we do a little check. So I'll leave the room and Jen will come in and, and she'll go, what do you really think? And then those eight, nine, 10 year olds go, it's, it's not very good. Um, I remember one kid we asked, um, well, then why did you say it was good? And they said to help her self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, probably is something thinking about this idea, you know, this socialization or, or what we learn from those around us, they probably got that exact phrase from somewhere, right? And so that's what we're trying to kind of investigate. We're curious, you know, why some, why some six-year-olds are already kind of telling these little white lies and other six-year-olds maybe are being a, a little more honest. And we're collecting some data here and in the Netherlands about how parents talk to their kids about these sorts of things. To, to try to unpack it more. But yes, if you want to feel, if you want a four-year-old to look at you and tell you your drawing is bad, this is this is the business to, to, to be in for that. So it's been a lot of fun to do the work. And, and, and like John said, we love having, if families you know, listening to this are interested, we'll do a little plug at the end about how they can get in touch with us to, to get on Zoom and, and see what their four-year-olds say when they see bad art. I can speak from experience that our four and a half year old, she's usually pretty kind, right? Oh, daddy, that looks good. But occasionally she'll go, that, that does not look like that at all. That is not what that looks like. Deep down, you're kind of like, oh, well, I worked hard on that. I did my best, you know, but they're, they're, they're very, they can be very honest and blunt in that. So it's interesting to hear you say that. So when our kids do something, right? Like most parents, there's a reaction from us. Why'd you do that? Or, or don't do that, or right? And then comes the parenting, the teaching comes. But I'm always fascinated by the why. Like, why does she do that? Why is she thinking like that? Why is she reacting in such a such way? And there's appears to be, from what I've read about your research, the same goes for line that there's an underlying reason for it in the sense that it's developmental, that it's completely normal. 
So being developmental psychologists and also being parents, we have some weird takes on things sometimes. So when our friends share stories about their kids lying for the first time, Kate and I both get really excited and we say, do you realize how cool this is? Because it shows that your kiddo has gotten to a point where they've reached so many important developmental milestones. And so to be able to be a successful liar, and I know Kate started talking about this a little bit earlier, you have to have so many of those brain building blocks come into play. So first, you need to understand that what's in your head is not the same as what is in what's in other people's heads, right? And so any parent of a three-year-old will tell you this is one of the biggest challenges, right? Is that your three-year-old thinks you know exactly what they're thinking. And that can lead to a lot of disgruntlement among three-year-olds because they think you're a mind reader. But as they get to four and five, they start to develop something called theory of mind. And so they start to understand, okay, so what's in my brain is not the same as what's in my mom or dad's brain. So if I want to eat that cookie, they don't see me unless I tell them they won't know. Right. And that's really, really cognitively sophisticated. That's huge. And I don't know if Kate wants to talk about some of the other milestones that have to come into play to be a really good liar. Oh, yes. I mean, there's, and again, when we're saying you're a really good liar here, we're really talking about the four and five age range. So I do, I do want to caveat. These aren't complex, like deep lies. These are very simple. Yeah. Yeah. They're simple lies. They're simple lies. And, and it's, and it's certainly the case that if you start talking about, you know, older kids, teenagers, there can definitely be kinds of lies that would be a concern and that, you know, a clinician would maybe be concerned about. But at this, you know, when the four-year-old comes to you with their face covered in chocolate and says, I did not eat the donut, right? Like that's showing they're almost all the way there, but they haven't quite figured out yet. Well, they can, my, you know, my mom can see the chocolate. So she's going to, you know, see through that. So they have to have that kind of complex understanding to pull a lie off. Um, and it also requires this whole suite of abilities called executive function. Um, so these are things like being able to plan out what your lie is going to be and being able to inhibit. So I know the truth, but I can't blurt it out, right? You have to kind of stay consistent with your story. You have to be cognitively flexible. You have to hold in mind what your story was. And all of those same executive function skills are super important when we talk about, you know, going to school and, and starting to, to learn in that way. So a lot of those same skills that are important in lots of contexts uh, help underscore lying. So yeah, all of all of these kinds of stories our colleagues tell us, although Jen and I's kids are, are too young yet to be lying. So check back in a few years and maybe we'll <laughs> have changed our tune. <laughs> yeah, I was to say it's an interesting perspective to, to come to parenting with what you know and what you study, right? It's got to give you a different view on things. So in that sense, I guess, what would be some takeaways that you would give parents based off of your research, based off of your findings? And what are some things that personally you're going to take away from what you do and and just how you work with children? I think that's a great question. So when we think about, you know, lying and, and the social sophistication that goes into that, you know, here we're talking about more of those antisocial lies, but all the, also that other flip side that we were talking about, those pro-social lies. I know one uh, situation that can be really stressful for parents is, okay, my kid's birthday is coming up or a holiday, a gift-giving holiday is coming up, and they might receive something that they are not excited about. How can I get them through that social situation, right? Or we're going to visit 
our friends and our friend might not be a great cook. You know, I don't necessarily want my five-year-old blurting out at the table, this is really gross. <laughs> I don't want to eat this. And so part of what you need to keep in mind there is that if we're in a culture like the United States where we want to maybe our more polite thing is to tell pro-social lie in that situation, that's a good thing to practice with your kids. And so you might say, you know, hey, we're heading over to so-and-so's house and you know, sometimes the food that she cooks may not, or he cooks may not be the greatest, but I just, could you, for me, you know, smile and say, hmm, or, you know, keep those thoughts to ourselves and really helping to scaffold your kids. And so there you're kind of engaging in some social emotional learning with them, scaffolding, and also transmitting a cultural norm. I think the other part of that is our kids are picking up on this. We, you know, we're excited and studying more how we're showing them this. But also realizing, you know, if there's a behavior that you don't necessarily want your kiddo to engage in, such as antisocial lying, be really aware of when you're doing that around them. So if you want to teach that honesty is important, it's going to be a little bit confusing if you go to the theme park and say, okay, I know you're six, but today we're going to say you're four, right? Then you're saying, I think antisocial lying is okay. So, you know, just be aware that kids are, are watching those examples and picking up on those examples. Yeah, I think that's, that's great. And, and thinking about it too, uh, the example you're talking about is also a good chance with the, with the bad cooking for your kid to practice being in someone else's shoes. And so to say, you know, think about maybe how you would feel if you worked really hard on something and someone said they didn't like it, right? So especially if we're in a culture where it's sort of normalized to be polite and, and be glowing in our reviews of things, right? To sort of um, work with your kid about, well, how would you, you know, if you gave someone your macaroni art and they said they thought it wasn't a very good present, how might that make you feel? And that's a great tool for what we call perspective taking, kind of that theory of mind um, is the term that Jen was using of, of just thinking about other people's thoughts and feelings and, and that empathy. You know, and trying to take as many lessons as we can from this as we watch our own our own kids grow up too about, you know, it's very developmentally typical to, to tell lies. It's something that's a very expected developmental milestone. So when that, you know, when that happens, that is something to be expected. It doesn't mean that, that you did anything wrong as a parent. That's something that kids are just going to learn to do because um, they don't want to get in trouble for eating the cookie, right? That's a very natural, natural human reaction. So we're excited to keep to keep exploring this. And I'm, I'm very excited for when my own, my own daughter's old enough to do one of these, one of these studies. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I know, like I said, our four-year-old does those little lies and rather than coming out with her face covered and stuff, she'll go hide in the pantry and, you know, no, you can't have this. And then all of a sudden you hear something open. What are you doing? <laughs> Nothing. And then you walk over and there she is. Right. So that that's good. That confirms that I suppose what she's doing is, is completely normal. So quickly, I want to just get back to that cross-cultural research that you're doing. I know that you're doing research with a, a university in the Netherlands. What, what are we looking for there? What's that process going to look like? So we're working uh, with two researchers in the Netherlands, Dr. Rian Koch and Dr. Nicole Lukasen. They are both also interested in how lying is socialized across cultures, and in particular, how kids are learning from the kinds of lies that parents think are okay. And so in the first part of this research, we've been working with Texas State undergraduates and master's students 
and the researchers in the Netherlands to just kind of get a baseline idea of what lies are considered appropriate in the US and the Netherlands. And why the Netherlands is a good place to do this is that anecdotally people will say, well, the Dutch are more direct, right? And, and you see this on travel websites, you know, warning Americans or maybe Brits who are from less direct cultures. When you go and someone gives you feedback, it's going to be a little bit more direct and they're not being rude. This is just how their culture is. And in work that we're putting together for publication right now, and, and that has been presented at a few conferences, we've actually found that this holds when you ask adults, so U.S. and Dutch adults, is it appropriate to tell pro-socialized Dutch adults don't think it is, so they don't think that it's actually polite to lie, whereas U.S. adults tend to think it's a little bit more appropriate to do so. And then when you ask about different social situations, like imagine that you're in a cafe with a friend and that friend shows you a doodle and it's really bad, what is the appropriate response? Americans are a little bit more likely to say the appropriate response is to lie and to tell them it's a great drawing, whereas the Dutch are a little bit more direct in their feedback, right? And they say it's, it might be appropriate to tell them it's a terrible drawing. And so in future work, we're interested in moving from beyond that baseline of cultural differences to really seeing well, what happens before adulthood? What kinds of things are parents saying? What are their values that they're transmitting to children? Fascinating stuff. So lastly, how can people get in touch with you if they want to participate in one of your studies? Good. I was like, I was hoping you were going to ask going to ask that question. So thank you for setting it up for us. So we would love to have um, folks from all over get involved. Um, one nice thing about pivoting to Zoom studies is if we have listeners who are maybe alums or interested in the Texas State Big Ideas but aren't local uh, anymore, they can still participate. So um, if you send us an email to child study, so all one word, child study at txstate.edu. Our students look through those emails, just let us know. Um, if you're interested, we're looking right now, kids aged four to 10. So kind of a really interesting time period where lying develops. Teenagers are really interesting too. We just don't have any projects for them right now. And families can send us an email there. We'll get in touch with more information. Um, studies last about 20 minutes on Zoom and uh, you get a $5 Amazon gift card for participating. Legally, we can't give it to the kids, but we can give it we can give it to the parents for, for them uh, having a kid participate in one of our studies. And you know, we're also happy to chat with families who just wanna know more about, about science. Um, and then if there are listeners as well who are current Texas State students, we love working with students in our research too. And so they can, even though they're not gonna be enrolled in the child study, they can send, still send an email to that same uh, email address and um, we're happy to talk more. Dr. Jennifer Clegg and Dr. Catherine Warnell, thank you so much for joining us here on Big Ideas. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. And we're not, we're not lying about it. It really was no. a delight. <laughs> a delight to we're be here. Honest. A delayed response. No lie. <laughs> honest. Okay, good. And that's it for this month's episode of Big Ideas. Until next time, stay well and stay informed. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke with technical assistance provided by Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz.